I really have a treat for you today. I mean, I'm, I, I, treat is the wrong word. I have something incredibly important for us today. And it's going to be me, me not speaking. <laughs> it comes out of the convention that Kevin and Joe and Julie and I went to, International Foursquare Convention. It's every year on Memorial Day, Monday night it starts. And then it goes through to Thursday. I go this way for you guys. It goes to Thursday afternoon. And um, lovingly put, I mean, I'm not a huge denominational guy. To be frank and to be real with you, the reason why I joined a denomination was because I'm a pretty independent person. And I wanted to be under a structure that could discipline me if I got off base. I'm capable of getting things wrong every once in a while. And I came under a structure on purpose to do that. And so, uh, you know, I definitely respect my denomination. I actually serve as a digital superintendent. So I have churches that are under me and so on. And this is important to me and I believe in it. But, I, but, but do you just understand, I'm just not a huge Foursquare or AG or I'm a real body of Christ guy. Okay. That's what I care about. And it kind of, the, the, the conventions, I've been going to them for 20 some years. And the conventions up until about the last five years have been real, like I go because I get to see people that I love and I get to connect with them again. But I didn't go because of what they were doing, because it just wasn't that relevant. It just wasn't at a certain level. About five years ago, they put a new person in charge of it. And I don't know exactly what this person's doing, but I now know the name and I'm gonna go find him and I'm gonna say, what did you change? Because in the last five years, these things have just gotten better and better and better. And this year was, was yet again, the best I've, that I've ever seen. I mean, the things that God did in me, the things that he said to me, the way that things were spoken, it was phenomenal. Now, having said that, it was off to a rough start because on Monday night, the big, you know, nighttime would be where the big famous speakers are. And so the big famous speaker came in and just lovingly put, I'm sure he's a wonderful person. I've seen him speak before. Uh, but the bottom line was, is I even wrote Kevin a text right in the middle of it. And I went, what's going on here? Because this guy was, again, I'm not trying to be critical. I just need you to understand something so you understand the contrast to the thing I'm about to show you. What happened was, is that this guy was just, I really call it ginning up the crowd. He was trying to get them all excited. And one of the ways that he was doing it, the primary way, the thing I need you to hear is, is he kept saying, the Lord's saying this, and the Lord's saying this, and the Lord's saying this. And I love when the Lord talks. It's incredibly important to me. But I just didn't think that was him. I thought it was the guy speaking. <laughs> I didn't think it was God that was talking. I thought it was the guy speaking. And I texted Kevin and I said, is it just me? And he said, no, it's not just you. And as I talked to other people, many people felt that way. They didn't, he, it wasn't bad or anything, but it just was, you know, saying something was the Lord when it wasn't, which I, I don't like. But Tuesday morning, you put your least known speakers on Tuesday morning, right? Because people aren't even up yet because they've been out late last night. But Tuesday morning, a guy who was a youth pastor down in Olympia, you'll hear on the video I'm about to show you, you'll hear people cheering for him. That's because anytime you're speaking at a convention, you bring a lot of people with you to cheer for you, so somebody cheers. Because nobody knew who this guy was, unless you're part of Foursquare, and then the name and the family. He has a little bit of a name, but this is not like the other guy. This is not a guy you would know. And I'm telling you, this guy spoke a word from the Lord that was so important that as I was listening to it, I went, this really has to get to our congregation. I meant to do it last week. And then God said, no, finish up Genesis. And so I did. And then this is the week that I'm doing this. Now, here's the point though. Here's the issue. You got to understand, this is a pastor talking to pastors. So he's shorthanding a lot of things and he's saying things in a certain way and this sort of thing. And so there needs to be some translation to our lives, to our lives. And the first one is this. I need you to understand. When you think of pastor, you think of 
the paid guy. This is a biblical thing, right? There's 12 tribes of Israel. There's 12 tribes in the land. There's another tribe that has no land. And they're fully dependent upon the other tribe's tithing. So this is a biblical thing that God does to advance the kingdom, to have people that are, that are doing this full time and so on. But you do realize what happened in the New Testament, right? Because what happened in the New Testament is he took it from being one tribe, the Levites, to us. The Holy Spirit indwelling us to where the word says, but you are chosen, you are the chosen ones, chosen by God, excuse me, but you are the ones chosen by God Chosen for the high calling of priestly work. Who's he talking to here? Is this just a pastor at a pastor's conference talking to pastors? No, this is Peter talking to every single believer. You are a royal priesthood, it says in a more sort of literal translation. Chosen to be a holy people, God's instrument to do his work and speak out for him to tell others. So the point is, Everybody here is a pastor. Let me be a little more accurate on that. Everybody here has a ministry, has a calling. Prepared for you since before the foundation of the world. That's how important this was to God. This is something that before there was a you, there was a calling. For you to do this. This ministry. And we still have this mentality where we separate the two. We shouldn't separate the two. You've heard me say, I don't allow it to be so. I ask you not to call me pastor. If you come from the South and it really is important to you, I don't fight you. But I ask you not to call me pastor. Why? Because I have this really big issue in my heart. I'm going to just take a second here. I have this really big issue in my heart and it is this. I have this issue where you walk into a perfect church. The building is perfect. The grounds are perfect. The parking lot's perfect. The greeters are perfect. You walk in and the sanctuary is perfect and the choir is perfect and the pastor is perfect and his hair is perfect and his suit is perfect and his diction is perfect and he never interrupts himself and he never fails to finish a sentence and he always finishes his thoughts and it is perfect. With a big podium and a big stage. And I have this image of somebody in the congregation looking up at that perfect thing and saying, isn't he wonderful? I could never do that. Now, contrast that with how I believe. You walk into a building which is obviously being used and with things being used, there's a mess. And you come into people who are being used and they're a bit of a mess too. And you get to a pastor who could wear nicer clothes if he had a better body. <laughs> and who sometimes is so passionate about what he's talking about that he doesn't finish the thought, yet alone the sentence. And who is just doing everything he can to be incredibly real about everything, including all of his faults who I made a decision that when I became a pastor that I would live in a glass house and that there wouldn't be anything that I was dealing with that wouldn't be something that I would be bringing up as appropriate. I'm not, one only, I'm not a masochist, but as the Lord would lead, that there wouldn't be anything because I have this thing in my heart that says, what well, I want people in the congregation, what I want people who are with me at all to be doing is saying, you know what, if he can do that, I think I can too. Because it's a real walk. We literally didn't put the stage up as high as they told us to because of this principle. I said, I don't want to be up four or five steps. I want to be as close to the ground as I can and make people be able to still see. And so when you get to the back, it's kind of hard to see. Sorry. But that's why we did this. So are you getting the point here? I, I'm, I'm trying to get to a place to where Everybody understands that I'm just another person trying to do this just like you are, trying to get it right. And I'm not just talking about my walk with Christ as in holiness. I'm talking about actually living in Christ as he wants to do something through you. You see it? Because I believe in something 
this whole church was reorganized in 2009 around the principle of God has us all in a ministry. God has called us all to ministry. To our family, our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors, not just here in this building, but in every part of life where you are connecting with somebody, God has a calling and a ministry on you for you to do. That's the fun of the New Testament. I mean that seriously. The truth is, for most people, it's the fear of the New Testament that I should have to talk to somebody about Christ. One in 100 will ever lead anybody to Jesus. And that's the funnest thing you'll ever do in your life. God just wants to move through you and show you things that are so much better than anything the world has. Okay? So with that in mind, I just need to take a couple more seconds. I want to show you something. The Great Commission is, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. The pastors are supposed to go, right? This is every Christian, go therefore and make disciples. You have the Holy Spirit in you. You can do more than you've ever even begun to imagine. Teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Now, in order, therefore, for this talk that this pastor gave to peers, I need to give you a translation tool so that when you're listening to it, you don't go, well, he's talking about pastors and what's that got to do with me? Okay, I'm, I'm saying this is the way to be able to enter into this sermon, this message that this guy gave and really understand that God's talking to you because I think the principle that this guy elucidated, if he were to be speaking to you right now, he would have preached it slightly differently, but it would have been exactly the same point. This is a word from God which peels back an understanding of what's going on that is hindering us from actually moving out into the things that God has for us, that he wants us to experience, that he wants us to do. There's something that's holding us back that I had never seen before. Now, in order to get there, here's my translation tool. The first thing is, whenever you hear him say pastor or leader, every time you hear those words, hear God speaking to you, whom he has called to be a pastor and a leader. I'm, a, I'm right now, I'm pastoring, right? I don't really, I, this is actually more preaching. This isn't really pastoring to me, but, but you know, but I'll be pastoring one-on-one. -on -one. Well, how's that different than when you're at work and there's somebody that has a need and the Lord has quickened you, and you're now pastoring and leading that person. Because I'm telling you right now, there is no difference whatsoever. Same Holy Spirit moving through me, moves through you, and reaches out to, her, to help that person. Okay? So when you hear the word pastor and leader, leader, you're leading. He's called you to lead. He's called you to help people. Calling. We've already done this. The ministry to which God has called us all. When you hear him say you're calling, in, in Christian terms these days, that means you've been called to separate and to become a pastor. I've just argued that you're not called to separate whatsoever. You're called to be even more so in. Yeah. Okay? And that we're all supposed to be doing this. That's why I'm saying come to Church of the Beach next week. Okay? Get to be part of this family. Get to understand what God's doing and how he's doing it and who he's wanting you to do it with. Okay? Now, this is the big term, and i got to take one second on it, significance. I need you to understand something. It's the desire we all have to be important and to be known. And I want you to understand something. There is in all things, the thing itself is never the problem. It's the motivation that we do it with. And so understand, there's two ways one good, one bad, that you can be significant, important. One of them is God made you to touch and to reach and to help somebody else, to, to be used by him to make a difference in somebody else's life. That is significant. That is important. That is critical that you do this, right? So that's significant and it should make you feel good. God has made you to love when he moves through you and makes a difference in someone else's life. Got it? Okay, that's good significance. He is not going to use the term that way. Not that he doesn't know it, he clearly does. He's not going to use the term that way because he's trying to make a point, or more accurately, I believe, God is trying to make a point. 
about another kind of significance, importance, that is not God. And that has to do with puffing yourself up, being important. Look, pastors have an occupational hazard, and here's what it is. Right now, I'm talking to however many people are here, right? I'm talking to you. And, and I'm thankful, and I usually feel like the Lord's the one that's speaking, and I'm just enjoying it as much as you are, truthfully. But you have to understand, that's not necessarily what motivates all pastors. There's, he'll talk about applause, and what he's talking about is people saying how good the sermon was. I've always told everybody that preaches here gets something from me. Don't listen to what people say, but that's not important. The only person that's important is what God says to you on Monday morning about how you did. You have an audience of one. What people say, they'll say good things, they'll say bad things. If you're influenced by the good and the bad that they say, then you are on a boat in the wind and the waves being tossed about. You have an audience of one. That's what you're supposed to have. But think about it. You do this all the time. You've been doing it for a long time. You get to thinking, I'm important. I'm significant. The more people that listen to me, the more people that, see what I'm saying? And then you get to go to an international convention and speak to all of your peers. He, this guy does such a brilliant job. You'll hear it. It'll go, by, it'll go by in two seconds. So I'm going to alert you to it. He will say something in this sermon. He'll say, the biggest problem I had in preaching this particular sermon was knowing that I was going to speak in front of my peers, I wanted to be impressive. And that would get in the way of me being godly. Do you see it? That ego. It's important to be seen as somebody important to other people. You see it? Now, it's not just pastors that go through this. In your job... When you do your job really well as a craftsman, you are seen as quality. You are seen as being good at your job. And there's nothing wrong with that, is there? Because it's good to be good at your job. It's good to be good at your craft. And it's good to be recognized for that. That people recognize, you know what you're talking about. This is something we can trust. But there is another kind of thing that all of us face in our jobs. Even if you're, even if you're a mom staying at home, which is a big job, right? Even then, there still is that thing about who's the better mom. Now, not everybody is totally competitive, but, and I don't, you don't need to be competitive. You don't need to be male testosterone to be in this thing. What you need to do is you just need to be getting any part of your identity from how other people see you. You see that? As soon as you're getting any part of your identity by how other people see you, then you're into the perverted part. By the way, Satan is having a field day with this right now in our popular culture. What, what has taken over the entertainment industry? What kind of entertainment? Comic books. Comic books. Captain Marvel and Avengers. And these are great movies, right? These are great movies. And I'm not saying don't go to them. Don't misunderstand. My threefold would kick me out if I said I couldn't, you couldn't go to them. But I like the movies too, but you have to realize there is something that's being played on that you don't quite realize in your ego, which is being the person that saves the world. Being a person with special power so that you're better than, more than. Even to the point of just all the way down to the very bottom, right? That one person is mean to you and you're able to go like this and a power thing goes out there and knocks them against the wall. <laughs> Do you, see the, do you see what's in there in us? We, we want to be able to silence people that are criticizing us or being mean to us or, or being unfair or unrighteous or whatever it is. You see that? And this is playing to this thing inside of us that needs to be important. It is the perversion, as there always is, of the godly thing. There's always a perversion to the godly thing. So what I'm trying to say to you is this. Virtually every motive we ever have is a mix of the holy and unholy. The things God has put in us to do his will and the things are ego and self desires. To, see, to be seen as important in others' eyes or even just your own. See? I did something that was 
Now again, there's a good side and there's a bad side. And this, of course, is scripture. We are all infected and impure with sin. And let's just call that self right now. When we display our righteous deeds, they're nothing but filthy rags. What this does is it impacts everything that we do in our lives. All the things that we do for God. Here's what, here's what Christians do. Pastors do it a lot and Christians do it plenty. You know that you're doing it for the wrong motive. You know that something is in there that's about your ego. And so you dress it up in Christianese to make it palpable. You know the funny thing about putting on a facade so that people will see you the way you want them to see you? You're the only one, that's, you're the only one that is fooled by it. <laughs> the thing about facades is everybody else sees right through it, <laughs> right? Oh, there's a building back there that isn't quite what they're trying to make it out to be. <laughs> Being transparent is the most phenomenal freeing and raising thing that you can do. When you try and hide, the only one you're hiding from is yourself. Okay. One more quick one or two more quick ones. Super apostles. He will make reference to a super apostle because he's in a room full of pastors. Everybody knows what he's talking about. I want to explain it so that you get it because it's important. He is going to be working out of a passage in 2 Corinthians, which is a letter from Paul to the church at Corinth. And in that, what has happened is Corinth has become a pretty big church now. And there are people who are starting to come in who are coming into the Christ Christianity to make themselves important, to be important. This thing we've been talking about. Or even rich. And what Paul is going to do in this passage you're going to hear him read is Paul is going to present the entirely opposite way of being in ministry. That it's not about you at all. And that as long as it is about you, you're not going to do the things that God tells you to do. <laughs> See it? So he's talking about the super apostles. That's what they call themselves. They're the, they're the super, he's making fun of them. He's calling them the super apostles who are really puffing themselves up. Okay. And the second one is particularly ironic for somebody from Seattle because this is Mars Hill. And Mars Hill is a, is a shorthanded way of talking about a particular sermon that Paul did. He only did it one time. And that was he went to Athens in Greece, which is at the, was at the time and for a long time was the most intellectual place on the face of the earth. All of the best and brightest went to Athens in order to sit there in the Parthenon and the thing that they had there and they would talk. And they would eloquently, they would come, as Paul says in a, at a later time, I do not come to you with words, with eloquent words of man's wisdom. That's what they were doing. And when he went to Mars Hill, he did a sermon like that. He adjusted how he normally ministered. He did a sermon that was totally different because he was trying to talk in intellectual ways. Now, here's the irony of that. What, what a lot of pastors, and again, a big church in our area, Mars Hill, Mars Hill is thought to be by a lot of pastors the way that you reach the world. Because whatever setting you're in, you want to become that. And Paul does say, whatever setting I'm in, I become that. But the thing he never does is, he never, he never goes worldly. He only stays godly, except that one time. And in Mars Hill, he gives this beautiful, eloquent, philosophical talk. And they say, this is very interesting. Come again tomorrow. What did Paul do? He packed up his bags and he left town that night. He never ever preaches that way again and he talks directly about it and says, I won't ever do that again. Why? Because he didn't bear any fruit. It was just endless talking. And he said, I don't come with eloquent words of man's wisdom. I come in a demonstration of power in the Holy Spirit. I come in a real way. So he'll make a reference to Mars Hill, and that's what he's referring to. And then the last thing before we hit it, pastor and or leader. Do you hear this? This is a repeat of number one. Pastor or leader. Every time you hear those words, hear God speaking to you whom he has called to reach others, to pastor and to lead others. Okay? So with that, we're just about to head into it. Who's our prayer? Oh, Lovely, this is perfect. You asked me about this and I actually said, nah, he'll be perfect. And the reason why is because 
you, you are one of those people that really doesn't have a lot of self-aggrandizement about themselves. And you actually have an awful lot to commend you. So I shouldn't say that because then it puffs you up and puts you into temptation. But I thought, here's a guy who doesn't puff himself up. He just is what he is, and it's quite remarkable. So having said that, would you pray for the sermon that somebody else is going to preach and another church? Thank you, Lord, for today. Please, uh, please bless this word. Put your message into it. Please prepare our hearts to hear it. Um, please also be with Good Shepherd in Massachusetts. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Well, good morning. Um, come on, what a privilege it is that uh, I get the chance to speak and share my heart with you this morning. Uh, it is no small thing for me uh, to be asked to come and speak to my peers and my mothers and my fathers. And so I just want to say thank you. Uh, I love Foursquare. And I am so honored to be part of this family. And uh, Dr. Burris, I just wanna say thank you for everything that you have done in my life and the way you uh, have loved Emily and I. And um, we're just so honored to be here today. Uh, over the last several months, as uh, I've known, I've had the opportunity to come and speak to you, to speak to my own family. There has been a passage that has just been put on my heart that today I come to you with um, a word that has been born out of prayer, that is born out of my heart for you, and that I believe is something that God has for us out of a, a season of transformation in our own movement of church. Let me read this passage to you out of 2 Corinthians 4. It says this, therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed on the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Life is at work in you. My simple word for us this morning, uh, church family, is that I believe that God is calling us back, that calling must be, more, uh, must be greater than significance. Calling must be greater than significance. Paul in this passage does something very significant. I believe he actually here more than anywhere else is trying to explain who he is, what he believes, and what his life is about. I believe in 2 Corinthians 4, you hear the greatest vision of the Apostle Paul of what it actually means to be a leader in the name of Jesus. And here he casts a vision for a way of life, which is a calling to all of us. Every single one of us who calls on Jesus and looks to him to be in the ministry, to be a leader, to be a person of, of, of giving our lives for the sake of the gospel, it's here in 2 Corinthians 4 more than anywhere else that we see Paul cast a vision for what life is like for us but I believe that something significant has happened in our culture that has caused a change for us, that you and I in many ways have deviated from 
Paul's simple vision. You see, we have to recognize that we are pastoring in a new day. We are pastoring in a new season. What, what is happening around us is not normal and is not ordinary. And I often say it this way, I'm waiting for the church to recognize we are no longer prophets to Israel, but we are prophets to Babylon, and we must learn how to raise up a generation of followers of Jesus who are able to be cultural exiles. As, as Americans, we have to recognize that we are actually alive. We are pastoring in the collapse of Western Christianity, and there has to be something that changes within you and I if we're actually going to lead ourselves and lead our children, lead our families, and lead our churches through this season. And I believe more than anything else, it's because we have bought into a lie that I say this not as one judging you, but one among you, that we have traded in our spiritual birthright for significance. That instead of living faithfully to our calling, we have bought into a lie that we are significant when we are seen, we are significant when we are known, and we are chasing a false idol. Herman Vavink, who is a Dutch theologian, said this, the more abundantly the benefits of civilization come streaming our way, the emptier our lives become. With all of its wealth and power, it only shows that the human heart in which God has put eternity is so huge that all the world is too small to satisfy it. But can I tell you the people that I find disbelieve this the most are pastors, our leaders. Because friends, I think in many ways we have become addicted to the drug of applause. What I've learned over my life in ministry is that ministry is painful. Can I get an amen? Anyone an amen for the cost of ministry? But I'll tell you that Jesus had a plan for the cost of ministry and it was his presence. But what's happened is instead of you and I actually learning how to sustain the cost of ministry through his presence, we've substituted his presence for something we want more, which is significance. And we're trying to, to balance the cost of ministry with an idol that can never satisfy the ache of our hearts. We have to come back to calling being stronger than significance. Eugene Peterson speaks to it this way. He says in his uh, eulogy, uh, in his writing called The Pastor, he says, I didn't want to be a religious professional whose identity was institutionalized. I didn't want to be a pastor whose sense of worth derived from whether people affirmed or ignored me. In short, I didn't want to be a pastor in the ways that were most evident and most rewarded in American consumerist and celebrity culture. I stand with this as a realization of my own heart that within me, can I tell you friends, the greatest drive over the last six months of simply preparing for today was the false motivation to be impressive. Because there is a brokenness in us, there is a brokenness in secular culture and what we haven't understood is that many of us are more of disciples of secularism than we are faithful to the ways of Jesus. And as we've given our hearts over to a culture, a culture that values celebrity, a culture that values status and a culture that is being known, we as pastors and leaders have subtly slid into the place where we have an idolatry called knowing, an idolatry called status and we've just wrapped it in Christian language and talked about impact. I'm here to tell you this morning that I think Jesus has a word for us. That what's at stake is significant because I believe that Foursquare has an inheritance and the inheritance is a spiritual awakening in our generation. But we will never move towards our calling, we will never move towards our inheritance as long as we stay in the lie of how many of us, how many parts of us are chasing an idol called significance. We have to recognize that our, dis our drive in many ways is destroying us. And friends, I, I, wanna, I wanna change the world. I, I, have, I have no problem with, uh, with, with the, the heartbeat inside of us that says we exist to transform the world. I have a dream in my heart for my city. I believe that God has asked us to plant a church in every neighborhood of Atlanta. I believe the greatest revival is coming in my generation. I have no problem believing for great things. The problem is when we pursue great things out of false things. We have to have the honesty to know the difference. When Emily and I moved to Atlanta just a little over six years ago to plant a church, we moved out of a, a place in the Northwest, youth and college pastors. And if you had asked me in 2011, if you would have said, Phil, you know, do you struggle with reputation? Do you struggle with identity and how, how you view yourself based on who, your reputation and who knows you and the size of your ministry? I would have said, no, those, you know, I've got my issues, but those aren't my issues. And then Emily and I moved to Atlanta with our two children, and, and as a parachute church plant, began the process of giving birth to a new church. Began the process of giving birth to a new church, and I suddenly realized those were all of my issues. 
I remember walking around coffee shops of my seat where I finally came to the conclusion and tears in my eyes walking around. I began to tell Jesus, I've lied to you my entire life. I've told you that you're enough for me, but you're not enough for me. You plus being known are enough for me. And once you take away being known, once you put me in a hidden place, once you took away everything that I found my value in, I've had to come to the honesty in my heart that you are no longer enough for me. That season changed my life because it forced me to address the idols of my own heart. See, there's this incredible quote, I wanna read it to you, by Bill uh, Derowitz, it says this, the camera has created a culture of celebrity. The computer is creating a culture of connectivity as the two technologies converge, broadband tipping the web from text to image, social networking sites spreading the mesh of interconnection even wider. The two cultures betray a common impulse. Celebrity and connectivity are both ways of becoming known and this is what the contemporary self wants. It wants to be recognized. It wants to be connected. It wants to be visible. If not to the millions on Survivor and Oprah, then to the hundreds on Twitter and Facebook. This is the quality that validates us. This is how we become real to ourselves by being seen by others. The great contemporary terror is anonymity. If Lionel Trilling was right, who's another philosopher, if the property that grounded us in the self was romanticism, was sincerity, and modernism was authenticity, then in postmodernism, it is visibility. While there's a lot of significant things to be taken away from this, we have to recognize that you and I are living in a generation where we have bought into the greatest cultural value is status and being known. And because as pastors, I believe we are actually most susceptible to this. As the ones who stand in the front, as the ones who lead the way, it is actually in the cost of ministry instead of turning to the presence of God to be the healing ointment that comes when we live in pain, you and I have given our hearts over to something else that can't satisfy us. And I believe this is what 2 Corinthians 4 is all about. You see, because the subtle context of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, as you very well know, is Paul versus the super apostles. Paul versus those who would find their status and their gifting, status and their knowledge, status in what people thought of them. And here Paul was calling people to something different. I believe 2 Corinthians 4 is a vision of pastoral calling. And right in the middle of it, Paul does something incredible. He talks about your motivation. He talks about your substance. And he talks about your activity. There's these three natures to what a pastoral calling is truly all about. And I would simply start with this. Paul's vision of pastoral intention is first love. It's first love. Listen to what he says. Therefore, since God's mercy, we have this ministry. We do not lose heart. Can I just tell you something I've learned? The only way you can actually sustain not losing heart is when your life is actually consumed by a first love for Jesus and not a performance of self. When you're living for a performance of self, you'll always lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. At the very beginning, Paul speaks to the motivation that drives him. Listen to the two things he says. Ministry is a gift and ministry is a response to the lordship of Jesus. And it is out of this place that I feel every single thing that I do. And I wonder how many of us have exchanged gifts for duties and, and, and have exchanged ministry as a, instead of being the response of our heart, of actually being the way we're trying to earn God's favor and trying to impress each other. See, only first love can sustain the cost of ministry. Only first love can actually become the motivation that drives us. And I speak about this with pastors a lot, and I know we know the language of first love, but can I ask us this morning, if first love is actually the audit that's happening in your life, would you survive it? Would a spiritual audit that came into your world, into my world, actually show that we're a people of prayer, we're a people of conviction, and we're a people of first love? Or have we become religious professionals that are too busy for spiritual practices? Have we actually put significance as the driving force of our life and not a radical abandonment and obedient to the person of Jesus? This has to become who we are. Jesus is calling us back to pastoral innocence over pastoral success. Uh, guys, I'm convinced of this because I know myself. Often in my flesh, often in my brokenness, I long for success more than innocence. And because I am a leader, I know how to lie to people. I know how to put Christian language around it and make it look godly. Can I tell you what I'm convinced of? I am convinced that we serve the God who sees the hearts of shepherd boys and makes them kings and he doesn't change. 
And if we wanna come back into the fullness of our inheritance, if we wanna walk in everything that Jesus has for us, we have to come back to a place of innocence over success. I grew up in what I like to call a, a slightly dysfunctional charismatic church. Don't worry, it was an Assemblies of God church, so I'm not. Um, I loved our church. And many incredible things happened in my life in the church that I grew up in. And it was a church that just longed for a level of charismatic expression without any sense of discipleship, meaning, purpose, or understanding. Um, I remember my youth group was a strange experience. I mean, you never knew what was gonna happen at youth group. We, we would show up some weeks and they would just say, everybody get in the van, we're gonna go evangelize at the mall, which is the terror of every 14-year-old. I still remember the moment we showed up at the mall and my youth pastor hands me a whole bunch of tracts and says, now go share the gospel. I have no idea what the gospel even is. I remember going to the mall. I was so terrified. Such a fear of man controlled my life. I walked into a department store called Dillard's and I just put all of the tracts into pockets of coats. I... And I was walking, I'm walking out, try, try walking out, and then suddenly fear of God seizes my life. And so I go back and I lay my hand and I pray for all the jackets. Jesus, please, whoever buys this jacket, may they come to know you. I just didn't, you know, this was the youth group I grew up in. I have a lot, a lot of stories. I could spend the rest of the time stories. But I still remember this one moment where, where we were having a night of, a, a moment of worship. And there was a, a sincere sense of God's presence. But this was pretty normal, that there would be these profound charismatic statements that I had no, no idea what they actually meant. And in our, in our chapel, in our church, there was this, this person who is kind of saying, listen, I, I sense that God is pouring out the waterfall of his presence, and if we want to enjoy the waterfall of his presence, then we have to activate it by playing in it. And here, I'm, I'm in middle school, so the, the person's like, come on, let's go. And so literally, we just went and played in the waterfall of God. I still really don't know what we were doing, but I remember we were splashing each other. It was very embarrassing. Then suddenly, because God changes his mind a lot, the, the waterfall went away. And suddenly now God was doing a new thing found in the whirlwind of God. And if you wanted to receive from the whirlwind, boy, boy, what is the whirlwind of God? And I don't know if I actually want to receive from the whirlwind of God, but this was the call to us. If you want to receive the whirlwind of God, then you've got to participate in it. And I remember my heart, this is a season of my life. I was so in love with Jesus. And so I was like, I'm in. I want everything that you have for me, God. So next thing I know, there's just a bunch of middle schoolers running around the sanctuary as fast as they can, right? Now, nobody, nobody asked me to do this next part. So to be fair, this one's all on me. But this shows you where my heart, I'm so in love with Jesus. I'm running around this room. I'm sure delirious is on in the background. And then like, then somewhere, right? I'm just like, I decide I'm gonna close my eyes. Jesus, you've got me, right? And so I'm just running. I'm just in love with Jesus. And in this church, church that I, that I grew up in, there was, on the wall was just these little divots that would stick out. You know what's about to happen next. They were about a foot out, and I'm running, and my eyes are closed, and I'm sprinting in the name of Jesus, because God is so good, and I want the whirlwind of God, and I catch my shoulder, right? And, it was, and this is in front of all of my peers. I remember I catch my shoulder, and I hit this, and I go flying into the middle of the room. My glasses break, and they just go flying. And I remember I'm just like, it hurts so bad. I'm crying. I'm embarrassed. I'm thinking about this moment. This is, this is why I grew up and hated church, right? Uh, and you know, it's funny, I had moments like this my entire life, just this, these, these experiences that I actually had to, to really wrestle through. And it was a while ago, I was actually sitting in prayer and I was thinking about this moment. And I was, I was filled with embarrassment and frustration about the lack of uh, discipleship and instruction that actually happened in my own life in that season. And as I was sitting with this, I felt the Lord speak to me. And you know what he said? Phil, I miss your innocence. I miss when you loved me like that. I miss your innocence. Do we actually listen to Jesus' words to the church in Ephesus? Listen to what he says to the church in Ephesus. Hey, by the way, I love your theology. I love your practices. I love the way you test apostles. I love the way you stand for the gospel. I love the way you're laying down your life, but this I have against you. You have abandoned your first love. Can I tell you, God is not concerned about how great your theology is. He's not concerned about how great your church is. He is deeply concerned about the condition of your heart. We have to come back to a vision of pastoral innocence over pastoral success. And then Paul, he talks about this place of motivation. And then he says this, for what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as servants for your sake. And it reminds us that Paul's vision of pastoral substance is slavery. We all know this, that word there, doulos, it does not mean servanthood. Our, 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 our biblical uh, interpreters are trying to be kind to cultural realities, I get that. This word does not mean servant. This word means slave. 
for what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as slaves for Jesus' sake. You wanna know what ministry is? Jesus as Lord and we as slaves for his sake. And see, this is the problem that, that I, I've wandered into. See, we have this idea that all fruit comes from intimacy with Jesus. It actually doesn't. See, something that I've learned about life, you know, the promise of John 15, if you abide in Jesus, you're gonna produce fruits that last. If you, if you disconnect from the vine, you're gonna wither and die. The problem is, is you actually have a decent amount of fruit in you, in your gifts, in your talents, in your convictions, in your way of life. And what happens as pastors and leaders is because we see fruitfulness, we actually see things growing in our lives, then we buy into some kind of deception that we're actually living out of a radical intimacy with Jesus. Here's the problem, you can produce fruit and it's deceiving you. But you wanna know what's true about your fruit? It doesn't last. It doesn't last, it withers, it dies, it cannot remain. There is only something in Jesus as Lord and we as slaves. And I have to ask you this, as a senior pastor in our movement, is this actually the very construct of the way us, we lead? Could you actually look at our life and say, the measure of my life that is evidenceable about how I live in front of my staff, how I live in front of my church, is that who I am as a slave in Jesus' sake? Jesus is calling us back to the sufficiency of Jesus over the sufficiency of performance. And I'll tell you, friends, my greatest fear for us is that one day we're gonna stand in front of Jesus face to face and realize we traded in our birthright for a spiritual awakening because all along we were just trying to impress each other. That there is a idol of significance that is mistreating us and leading us away. I've often thought, you know, it's interesting, we as pastors have this weird obsession with Paul at Mars Hill. The book of Acts, Paul goes to Athens and he, and he gives this incredible sermon, this moment where he uses cultural context and philosophy and he speaks the language of the culture. If, 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 you, if you've been around pastors and leaders, you know there's something about us that has this crazy cultural obsession, this pastoral obsession with Paul at Mars Hill. Why? Why? Because for us, it speaks to something we long for. It speaks to a moment where we could stand in front of our peers and have the perfect words and the perfect philosophy and the perfect thing to say. I actually believe the reason we are obsessed with it is because it exposes that significance is actually our drive. Can I tell you something that's interesting? Do you know the one place in the book of Acts Paul didn't plant a church? Athens. The one place that Paul didn't actually have fruitfulness? Mars Hill. Do you know where Paul went after that? He went to Corinth. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. And so it is with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration on the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Is it possible that Paul went to Athens and made an attempt that he quickly course corrected and said, there is not ministry that can be built on significance, but there is ministry that can be built on humility. There is ministry that can be built on fear and trembling. There is ministry that can be built on the Holy Spirit. I often wonder, have we become the super apostles and we don't even want to admit it? Karl Barth, the famous theologian, says this, the church exists to set up in a world a new sign which is radically dissimilar to the world's own manner and which contradicts in a way which is full of promise. Can we actually say that about our churches? That in a culture of significance, we are actually offering a countercultural road. See, calling invites us to find our meaning in being sons and daughters. Significance rejects meaning of sonship and by default makes us orphans. Calling invites us to become slaves for the greatness of Jesus, but significance guides us to make slaves of others in the pursuit of our own greatness. Significance is a false master that has a hold in way too many of our hearts. But Paul ends not just on a vision of intention, not just on a vision of substance, he ends on a vision of practice. Paul's vision of pastoral practice is death, is death and resurrection. Listen to what he says. We are hard pressed on every side, crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, not abandoned, struck down, not destroyed. We always carry around in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to the death for death of Jesus' sake so that in life we may also be revealed in our moral body. So then... Death is at work in us. 
but life is at work in you. This is the call of the pastor. This is the call of the leader in Jesus' name. I didn't sign up for greatness. I signed up for death because there's a promise that in my death is life for the people that I love. That in my death is life for the church that I lead. That in my death is the promise of the future of my children. You see, I care for very little things in my life anymore. I used to care about a lot. I care for very little now. What I care about is this, that I'll stay married to my wife for the rest of my life, that all of my children will love Jesus for all of their hearts, for all of their life, and that I wanna be faithful until the day I die, that I stand in front of Jesus one day being faithful and obedient to what he's called me to do. These are the things that drive me and these are the things that need to drive us. But here's the promise. The call of ministry in Jesus' name is an invitation to die. And can we honestly say when we look at the way we're cultivating our leadership and the way we're raising up other people and the way we're laying down our own lives and the way we're holding ourselves and the way we're leading our movements that actually at the forefront is the question, how do I keep dying? How do I keep giving away? How do I keep handing off? How do I keep raising up? How do I keep making myself less important and making other people more important? You see, because significance wants our name to be known but calling wants to raise up sons and daughters. All life-changing love, all life-changing love is substitutionary sacrifice. You know this. First and foremost, found in the person of Jesus, but then secondly, found in his church. God has called us to a demonstration that pastoral ministry is supposed to look like substitutionary sacrifice like death and resurrection. We have to come back to calling, being more significant, being more meaningful than significance. Calling has to drive our lives. We need to be a people who welcome death in. My sister and her husband are missionaries in Istanbul. They're some of my closest friends, my family, and heroes in my life. I still remember several years ago when they were serving in Istanbul and facing threats of persecution from ISIS. It was as the ISIS threat was growing and their church was actively being persecuted. Rocks were being thrown. There's things that, that people experience as they're laying down their life for the mission field. And I remember being on a phone call with my sister. It was actually one of the most significant moments in my recent life where I asked her, I said, Laura, are you guys thinking about coming home? Are you afraid? What about for your children? Are you thinking about coming home off the mission field in the middle of this season? And I still remember what my sister said, and she said, Phil, we've thought about it. But the people we pastor have nowhere to go home to. The people we pastor have no America to hide in. The people we serve have nowhere to run to, and what would it say to them about Jesus if we left them now? So no, we're not coming home, because this is what pastors do. This is what leaders in the name of Jesus do. We recognize that it is death in us that brings life in them. Not only found in the vision of suffering, but found in our pastoral practice, we have to come back to a vision of death being actually the way we operate in our lives. Jesus is calling us back to self-sacrifice over self-preservation. And T. Wright says this, we should not be surprised then though many in the church down through the years would be very surprised to hear this, that the early Christians understood their vocation as Jesus followers to include as a central and load-bearing element their own suffering, misunderstanding, and likely death. It isn't just that as followers of Jesus of a misunderstood Messiah, they would naturally expect misunderstanding and persecution, though that is certainly part of it. It is rather, and it is in the later books of the New Testament and indeed in much of Christian writing of the second century that explore this, that the suggestion of Jesus' followers is actually like Jesus' own suffering, not just to the inevitable accompanist of the, of the accomplishing of this divine purpose, but actually itself as part of the means by which that purpose is to be fulfilled. Suffering is how we advance the kingdom. And you wanna know why the kingdom is not being advanced in 21st century Western society? Because significance refuses to suffer. Significance refuses to take second place. Significance refuses to hand off ministry. Significance refuses to be less than. Significance wants to lift itself so high. You see, calling welcomes loss because it loves others more than self. Significance has no place for loss because it loves nothing but itself. Calling must 
be stronger than significance. And my word for us as a movement is in a culture of significance, Foursquare must live out its calling. I'm not talking about ideals. I'm not talking about young leaders. I'm talking about a question that has to sit at the core and the front of every single one of our hearts. Have we actually traded in what God has for us because we're trying to reach and achieve the greatness of our own name? Let me close on Jesus' words in Mark. Mark 8, 34 through 35 says this. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up the cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. So this is actually Paul's invitation. If Paul's right, if we believe him, if pastoral ministry is only born out of purity, slavery, and death, why would we sign up? Why would we say yes? Because friends, I am convinced of this, that a spiritual awakening in a generation is on the other side of a movement that finally replaces the idol of significance with a simple humility and obedience to do what Jesus has called it to do. So why will I fight for this? Why will I call this to this? Why will I demand this of myself? Why would I call our church family to this? It's because I believe that there is a spiritual awakening that is possible. And we can no longer live in a false pattern of our own lives, achieving and reaching for our own name. But it's time that we come back to what Jesus has actually called us to do, which is lay down our lives for the gospel because death in us means life in them. And this is God's calling for our church. Come on, would you pray with me? Jesus, we love you this morning. And I come not as a critic, I come as one under the weight of my own judgment. Father, I come as the first to repent. My flesh deeply desires to be significant. And I just admit to you, it is the greatest brokenness in my life. And I'm asking you that it, you would come in a new day in the Foursquare Church, and instead of us trying to acquire status, instead of us trying to grow in impressiveness of others, that you would actually move in such a way that you would redeem a first love in our hearts, a first love that is willing to, be, to come and sacrifice, a first love that is willing to come and serve, a first love that says, Jesus, for you, for you, I will come and make myself a slave. Not for people, not for mission, not for greatness but for you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. I, I just wonder, is it, is it communicating? Because it was so specific to pastor. So thank you for that. I think it did. Listening to it and trying to listen to it with these ears. You know, the bottom line is, the bottom line is, it was a little complicated how he said it because he was reading N.T. Wright, who is a little complicated. I don't know if you noticed, but that quote by N.T. Wright was almost one sentence, that whole thing. Just a complicated guy. But he was saying something super simple. If you want to see your friends, your coworkers, your family, your neighbors, if you want to see them come to Christ, you have to give yourself to them. You have to die. You have to not become more important than them for sure. But it's much more than that. You have to pour out your life for them and do whatever it takes. You have to be the kind of person that doesn't care about you being significant. They care about making them significant. The irony is, the way to significance is obedience and nothing but obedience. <laughs> right? The only way you're ever going to be significant in God's eyes is if you just do what he tells you to do. <laughs> and then you get significance that is not just effective and fruitful now, but it's eternal. As he says, well done, good and faithful slave. <laughs> That's our calling. Embrace it. 
Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, this congregation comes before your throne right now to say we hear your word and we say yes and amen to it. Amen means so be it and we say so be it in my life. So be it. So be it. Not me, not my significance, not my importance. So be it. Your important, what you think is important, what you want done. In Jesus' holy and precious name, nothing but what you want done in me, through me, period. Such a radical bent knee that whenever you do something through me, it is so obvious it wasn't me that I have no problem with pride. And then I get to enjoy you just touching people and waking them up. Showing them, opening their eyes, bringing them into an eternal relationship with you. In front of you are two cups. Grab them both. Stacked. Lift this cup in which is the bread, which today is that significance and importance in our own eyes. Us trying. And now we realize how much that's broken our lives. (laughs) The irony, we try and make our lives significant by trying to become significant, which is what breaks our lives. And so in Jesus' name, we put our finger in there recognizing it. And we break that bread and we say in Jesus' holy and precious name, your healing come. Make me whole, Lord. Get it right in me. Take this cup together to be healed. Thank you, Jesus. And now in Jesus' holy and precious name, God, we lift this second cup in which is the life that you have for us, the life already purchased at Jesus' death, the life that was purchased when his blood was poured out. In Jesus' holy and precious name, it's a life just waiting for us to enter into his death and thereby experience the greatest joys, the greatest of all in everything. It's just waiting for us. And so we take this cup to say, bring it to pass now in my life. Thoroughly take together this cup. Thank you, Lord.